everybody. Welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. My guest for this episode of Mixmasters is Matt Durkis, and Matt is the front of house engineer for a band you may have heard of called Bad Omens. I say that jokingly because they're literally exploding right now, selling out every venue they play in. Apologies for the audio for this intro. I'm recording this sitting right next to my good friend Kyle Rosa. Hi, Steve. Hi, Kyle. Where are we, Kyle? Um, I have no idea. A but the city-wise, we're at a truck stop. Uh, somewhere on the way to Warsaw, Poland. Yep, we're at a little motor services along a highway in Poland. It's sleeting and snowing out, and we're in the back of a bus, which is a little bit noisy. So we'll stop this intro here. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned for more that'll be coming soon. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Mixmasters, where my guest for the day is Matt Durkis. And Matt, I hope I pronounced your name right. I got a little coaching from John Klucheritz. Hey, it was right. It's perfect. So Matt joins us. He is currently the front of house engineer for a band that you may have heard of called Bad Omens. And I say that partially in jest because Bad Omens is literally blowing up the music scene right now. I watched Matt go on his last tour, and I think every single show was sold out before the tour even kicked off. Is that correct? Yep, yep. Uh, For the last one, all sold out in advance. And for this next one that I fly out for tomorrow, also all sold out in advance. So this is like part two of that, like the the European leg. That's amazing. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I I don't really know a ton about you. I met you through our mutual friend, Shelby uh, Eisenberg, and I believe I was hanging out with Shelby up in Green Bay and you had called him with a DLive question. I think that you were just getting started on the D library. Something was weird with your D live. I can't remember the scenario. We'll talk about that too, but to help me get to know you and to help other people who may not be familiar with you, can you give us a little history on yourself? When did you get into music? Do you play any type of instrument and how did you get to where you are currently today? If you want to give us the 30,000 foot overview or go into detail, it's totally cool either way. Sure. Uh, Okay, cool. So um, I initially started, off uh, in this world doing uh, band stuff, like like most of us. We started off playing in bands and you kind of just transitioned into back of house stuff or front of house stuff or whatever. Um, played drums for a long time, uh, touring. Also had been like recording bands for a long time before I really got into playing in bands and stuff like that, or I guess kind of in tandem with it. It all kind of just expanded together. Um, but I always liked recording and I always liked making stuff sound, you know, the way I thought it should sound. I was like very particular about that stuff. I can't tell you how many arguments I got in with uh, old bandmates about how I would just sit there and tune drums forever and hold up rehearsals and this and that and the other. And just, I was so particular about the way amp sounded and 
drum tuning and all kinds of stuff. And it's just so, so over the top, like particular nitpicky about things. And that kind of expanded into me, kind of just took that uh, route into the live sound uh, aspect. Like a lot of people will say like recording and live stuff are totally different. And I kind of disagree. I think that as a, a studio person coming to the live stuff, it was like a lot of things are very, very, very similar. And a lot of people feel like, different about it like there's there's obviously certain aspects of it that don't translate exactly but you know you're pretty much just trying to tune your room and then your mix fits into your room and a lot of a lot of the similarities between uh that the studio situation because a lot of studios need to get tuned out to where your stuff sounds correct in it so i don't know just uh i was like drums and then i just uh i think i'm getting uh i think i'm messing it up right now i'm not really good at talking about myself <laughs> oh no it's okay it's it's perfect so when you were doing your studio work, were you working at an actual studio? Did you have a place at your house or how did that, how did that come to be? I have always done it from home. I've never recorded in a, um, like professional space. Like I never worked in a big, like pro studio. I always did it at home, spent lots and lots of time on YouTube for years and years and years, like everybody else, just slowly stocking up stuff. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a, a very big, uh, space in my house that I could record drums in. So I actually got to work on live drums and recording live drums a lot, which I think was a big, big help for um, like live drum processing and stuff that we do live now. Because a lot of people, they'll do studio stuff, but they're stuck with MIDI everything because they don't have the space to do live things. So it also helped me put together a really sick mic package that I would just had really cool stuff to take out on the road from the get go which is a big plus because a lot of people you see like their initial start point from touring, they'll go out and um, they're like really, really kind of suffering, not having consistent mics. Like they, they'll have a vocal mic or they'll have some 57s or this, or that, or the other, but they're like have really inconsistent drum stuff or they don't have any drum stuff. So um, they'll go out and they'll just have to use the house things and house drum packages are mid at best just usually not awesome unless you started getting into those big capacity places but by the time you're there you usually have stuff so i was very fortunate um to just kind of have that situation where i had a place to work on drums and then when we first started touring or i first started touring with bands i had like a solid package which i feel like was a was a lot of help in the get-go on the way in can you talk a little bit about that drum mic package? I'm I'm a drum mic junkie. I have way too many mics in my arsenal, but I always love hearing what people are using. And people who've listened to the pod are probably tired of me talking about drum mics, but I don't care. Matt has one of the sickest drum sounds I've heard. His snare bombs are pretty legendary too. We'll talk about those, but <laughs> walk me through your drum mic package if you don't mind. So I feel like it's not that crazy. I just like wanted to get stuff that I felt like was the tried and true versions of everything. Initially, I was rocking a, uh, a Beta 91 for the in, and I had a D6 for the out. Uh, snare top and bottom, I had a 57A on top, and a 904 for bottom, which I still do. I was doing a D4 on the rack tom and two D6s on floor toms, but now I have a D6 on the rack tom. So I'm D6 across all toms. So all three toms, D6, and my kick out, which is um, on a Kelly shoe, which is also in the kick, but it's my out used mic whatever it's a telefunken m82 so i'm using the m82 and a 91 combo uh 3d6s on toms i have 81s on my hi-hats because nick uses a uh he's got two sets of hi-hats so he's got left hat and right hat like an ox hat that's always closed 
I'll use 81s on those. I've got some of those Warms WA-14s for underheads. I don't like to do overheads like over everything. I like everything on LP claws right under stuff so I can really pick and choose how to spread everything out in like a stereo image on the close mics. And then what else? I've got a Audio-Technica 4040. Yep, that's the one on the outside because he has like a really, really wide setup so he's got like a efx crash and shine on the far far outside right of his kit um so i put that 4040 under that one just for those two uh for the china and the outside guy and then what else is missing i have one of those i forgot exactly what it is but it is uh one of those small diaphragm condensers of uh, audio technica like that's the the little stick one but it's forward addressing so it's not like it's uh, out of the top but it's on the it's forward facing uh i use that for ride so i get that right up under his ride bell so i can't remember the name of that audio technica either but i believe ross from nothing more uses the same mic and i saw it a number of times on tour with them but i'm drawing a blank so it's all good we'll figure it out later and i'll put it in the show notes you know what i'm talking about yeah that's the one um i saw architects have like six of those on their kit at one point in time it was like on every single symbol is like hats overheads or i guess his underheads and then um, all of those aux mics and all the close mics. And I was like, that's cool. And then um, a Jolly actually gave them to me. He had two from like his old days and recording in Sweden before he came out here and started living here doing band stuff. So I've got those two from him, but now I just use the one of them. Super cool. So let's walk through your mic count then. How many, how many cymbal or metal mics are you using in addition to your two on kick, two on snare, uh, three toms? So that puts us at seven. Two high hats is nine. I heard a ride 10. What else have you got hanging out? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, hat one, hat two, ride outside China, overhead, overhead. So six symbol mics sounds like, but I don't use overheads. These underheads. Yeah. I think, I think that's all of them. If my math is right, I'll check it later on and I'll probably find out that I'm wrong, but I think that's 13 drum mics. That's, that's pretty healthy. There's a side snare too that I we just recently started adding. So there's a side snare which has a Sennheiser 905 on it. They don't make them anymore, and I spent years trying to find one, and I finally found one on uh, on uh, eBay. So I grabbed the 905, which is a cool clip-on guy, like the the bigger ones, like the 904. But you know what I'm talking about. But it's that big long clip-on Sennheiser old one that they don't make anymore. But I really love it for side snare. So that's uh, that's what I'm using for that. Is that side snare like a piccolo snare? No, it's the opposite. It's like fundamental down at like, I think I have it down like 130. Like it's super low. So it's super low, big fat guy with a bunch of snare weights on it, big thick head on it. And it's just as low as I can get it fundamentally without like falling out on me. So yeah, that's that's what that one's for. And then we recently added a drum pad for him. So he has like a stereo pad now so we can play all like the e-kit parts from the records now because there's just so much and we do so much of that stuff live now that... uh it was just weird to have him just sitting there and he's like, you know, he's sick. So we want him to have him playing as much as he can. So he's doing all that now with that. And then we also just got a new, I was ran, I ran out of inputs. I was 16 on my, on my snake now. So I had to get more. So now I have 20 back there so he can have a talk line to me. And then I can also put a kit mic up. So I'll put like a, uh, like a 57 or an M80 or something like that behind him to get like a full kit, like room mic that I'll have at, the the riser or whatever just behind him because i really like having like just a little bit of everything all-encompassing mic 
just for the full kit, but I can finally do that again because I used to be able to, and then I lost it because I had to get close mics up or the pad or whatever, but that's something that'll be new for next tour, which will be nice. Are you using an analog snake back to your mix rack from the drums or are you on a, like a DX one, six, eight, and then, you know, uh, another smaller analog snake. How are you doing that? No, it's uh, just one big analog guy now. So, um, we have just the DM 48 over at our stage rack and I just run analogs, um, all the way across stage to there. Uh, DX one, six, eight seemed cool, but I, uh, just couldn't justify having the extra one. I was like, you could have a DM 32 or CDM 32 or whatever, and then a bunch of DX one, six, eights everywhere. But then I'm just like my, the thing I'm worst at that is just like, so time consuming for me is routing and all kinds of all the extra IO stuff, like inside the console is just, I hate dealing with it. So if I just have like one mix rack position that everything goes to, it just, I feel like it just cleans up my thought process and makes everything faster for me. Definitely simplifies it from that side. I, I sympathize completely, but that said, I do have a couple of DX 16 eights. And so I use those pretty regularly. I like them. Uh, I wish they had one that was just all ins though, because I don't always need the outs, especially like downstage or, or something like that. I'm, I would rather have a box that's like a DX 20. It's eight outs at the drum riser. That's crazy. I do use those from time to time for uh, in-ear mixes, depending on who I'm working with, if they're on wired or wireless. Yeah. In-ears, if they're on wired, it's nice to have those outputs over there. But yeah, you're right. Nine times out of 10, you don't really need those outputs quite as often. It's funny that you mentioned wired. Your mixes um, Our new snake that we just got is like the 20 ins and two returns. We had to put two analog returns on it just in case there's like a oops moment where there's like wireless messes up for the day and I need to run them a hardwired scenario. I can just, you know, just throw us two from his mixer or run his mixer out and then run those two out from the, from that snake to him directly. So it's not just absolutely ruined. Cause you know, we've all had the scenarios where there's crazy bad RF and you're just like, man, we might have to, might have to wire it today. But now I have the backup scenario, which is nice. I love that. Who who built your snake for you? That sounds like a pretty crazy or interesting uh, build. It is a BTPA. We just started getting a bunch of stuff through them. So we got some new panels recently um, for our stage rack and being able to fit more stuff through there correctly. And we finally got some uh, multi-pen stuff. So this is a W2 guy. So it's nice. So it's 50-foot um, snake. And then we also got a 25 foot extension for if it's ever not enough, like for fests and things like that. Our, our old one was 50 feet. It would just get a little too close for comfort sometimes and just be just right at the edge of being able to go around stuff safely and had to be like out of a cable ramp or just kind of in front of other cables on the stage. And it's just right in the way. So this time we got a bunch of W2 stuff that we could all pin together with a with a jumper on it too, which makes things just a little bit nicer, you know? We ran into that a couple of times on this last tour with Motionless, the Trinity of Terror. We run massive stages in arenas all the time and all of the Atreyu stuff was like fifty foot whips and it's just barely not enough sometimes. Yeah, and depending on how we were set up, we were usually off of the deck and usually behind or further out from motionless Ice Nine and Black Veils stuff. So it was bad enough to have to cover the whole width of the stage, but then I'd have to cover like another 20 feet off of the edge of the stage. And so, yeah, having those extra extensions, that was that was a smart move. Kudos to that. Yeah, we just ran into the issue too many times where it's like, you know, we, we have two guys on side stage that are like taking care of everything that's during show. And um, it's just, if I have to 
but we have like big heavy racks too like we have those big like god cases that all of our fly racks go in and out of that just stay assembled so we can just pull them out drop them in the iFly cases and go fly anywhere or do whatever if we have to but those things are like super heavy and a lot of times there's not a ramp to stage so you got to be on the ground off the side of the stage if there's like a you know built-in stage in a venue somewhere that's just like you know say you're in a big warehouse and there's just a built stage and there's no way to get your stuff up there that's not already there so if you're on the ground and your stuff's not long enough it's too bad for you so just uh got burned one too many times we're like let's, let's get let's get something with some extensions on it just in case Absolutely. Yeah, that that is always a stressful day when you realize that your whips and your runs aren't quite long enough and then you got to race around looking for XLRs and you're doing all sorts of crazy extra patching. Especially if you have a, just, a, you know, 20 drum lines. <laughs> Which you do. Yeah. So that would, that would be bad. Okay, so that's drums. Take us through the downstage area. I, I'm sort of jumping around, but I feel like it would be cool to do a little rig round rig rundown on your setup with Bad Omen. So what do you have downstage? Are you guys all profilers? What are you doing for vocals? Just take us through that sort of process. So we're not doing anything too crazy downstage. There's just uh, this whirlwind little six banger snake, 100 foot guy that just runs to stage box as well. Um, I have my stage left and stage right vocals run into that. I'm using 945s on the guys up front for Nick and Jolly. Uh, I have Rode NT5s on their vocal stands for crowd mics. And then I have an M80 wired as the spare that's out of that. So there's just five out of that one. Nose on a wireless, um, all downstage. There's not an amp out or anything. Uh, everything stays in the rack. Everything's all fully automated. We use the uh, quad cortex, the neurals. So they're all fully automated within our session. Solid patch changes just happen everything like that just kind of it just get, it just goes like like mini bands now which is nice so we don't have amps out on stage or anything like that so it's not very messy and then yeah that's just that's all downstage it's just the two mics for the backup guys jolly sings a lot of harmonies also i've got the opto gates on them which is big big huge win those things are like lifesaver i used to have to automate on and off everybody's mics like with I had every, uh, each mic on a mute group between Jolly and Nick, so I just have to have my left hand or right hand, whatever console I was on at the time before we had stuff, just at my mute group area. Just one and two was just Nick and uh, Jolly was two, just because stage um, stage right and stage left, just from my perspective, and I just have to know the song, so I would just pop, pop it whenever Jolly was about to sing or scream and then pop it back when he was done for the entire set all the time, so just creating my own OptiGate situation was, was just so overkill after the fact, but, you know, definitely cleaned it up a good bit. If people are not using the OptiGates, they're really pretty awesome. I started using them with Asking Alexandria, and those guys loved it because they would run their vocal mics so hot. Yeah. And it just eliminated all of the bleed, and I've been using it with bands ever since. And so do you use the full mute one, or do you use the one that just ducks it like 20 dB? I think it's the full one. Yeah, me too. Just all the way down. And then um, here and there, strobes and like really crazy like movers. If they're like a really, really, really heavy beam, will will kind of trick it here and there. So I have a, a gate behind it that's like just a noise floor dropper. So it's like minus 20 or minus 30 on that scenario. So if it does pop through, it's still just low enough that it's not just, you know, the classic gate opening sound that's just insanely bad sounding but 
I had to do that as well. Uh, I had one of the guys in one of the bands I work with, and unfortunately, this is an audio-only podcast, so people won't be able to see what I'm doing. But if the mic was, if you would be standing frontwards to the mic singing like you should, it worked fine. But this guy was a side micer, so he'd come up to the microphone from the side of it and sort of sing across it. And six times out of ten, gate the OptiGate wouldn't see him, and so he'd look over. Yeah. And I'd be, it, there's some training every once in a while involved, but once, once you get them dialed, those things are really awesome. And, and they're, I mean, they're a little bit expensive, but you buy them once you treat them well, and then you just don't have to worry about being super crazy with your gates and people generally are happy with them. Yeah. They're, they're, they're great. It cleans up everything. Like you can do so much different vocal stuff that you normally have to like account for by having your vocal open like you have to cut out all your highs cut out all your like high mids just to like anything that has presence or just like i don't know any like cool sound attitude stuff to it that you would typically be able to boost in a uh, recording situation you have to dump all of that in a live situation if everything's just live open live and it'll just it'll take off on you but now with these things you can just go put all your stuff back in there make it sound like a you know treat it almost like a studio situation not not too extreme you can't go boost like 10 db of like 8k or anything like that but you don't have to dump dump everything and like high pass and low pass to you know take everything away from it so it's nice it's a uh, definitely a big win i've uh, if i ever have a situation where i don't have those i take all my new habits away <laughs> i just i i feel the same way it's like it's such a great tool once you have it in your toolbox you hate to be without it for real we need to call optigate and get like a coupon code or something and then put it in the podcast and get a commission on every one they sell yeah yeah just give us a little uh little deal or they just send me one for, for boosting them. That'd be cool. I'll take a backup. I've only got the two. One goes out. I'm, I'm toast. Two. So OptiGate, if you're listening, uh, please send Matt and I a spare OptiGate so that we have backups because you never have too many backups. What are you using on your lead vocals? We are um, we have a Sennheiser G4 system, I believe, for everything. Like all the ears and all the um, wireless, everything is all Sennheiser G4, I believe. And then... Um, I have a um, SEV7 capsule on his center vocal. So that thing is sick. I really, really like that one because it's just like, I feel like I get the most nuance out of it. He can still, it's like a really dynamic mic, but it's also really, really, really solid at rejecting cymbal bleed. Like I don't get a lot of uh, feedback peaks that I used to like have to fight against. I used a 945 for a long time and I really love the way it sounds, but if you got too close to drums, it would just take off on me. And I just, you know, shredding that fader. And then, um, but this new V7, I really, really like it. I just feel like it's, um, I feel like a lot of people recently that are within the realm of music that we're doing are like starting to lead on those. And I love them. I think they're sick. And Noah likes a lot for his ears too. It's just, um, like a lot smoother mic. You don't have to make as many harsh, insane cuts. It has like a smoother top end that you can actually go boost the high up there if you want to like add some air to it and kind of just do what you would normally want to do to a vocal mic that you weren't able to do because it had just like a a built-in high end that was just kind of weird on other stuff but this one has like a i feel like it's just got like the properties of a lot of different mics that i've liked but it's all in one and it doesn't take off on you as far as feedback goes which is pretty cool like he's he's 
he's pretty uh, guilty of putting the mic out to the crowd a lot of times to like, you know, finish, let them finish off a line for him. But he might be right under the PA on left or right sometimes. And I used to just freak out and be like, dude, you cannot stick the mic up. Like, you know, put your hands up while you're holding the mic right in front of PA. But this last tour, he did it a few times and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to leave it open. And if he does it and it blasts his ears out, they'll teach him a lesson, whatever. And he started doing it and it didn't take off on me. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Nice. All right. Never mind. <laughs> We're good. So yeah, I'm on that uh, SEV7 for the center vocal on the wireless capsule, which is a Sennheiser. Let's hope that he doesn't have to switch back to the 945 at any point And he's used to holding the mic up like that because his ears will be toast. Are you using, this is a stupid question, but I always like to ask, are you using the red or the black filter inside of the V7? It is the red one because that is what it came with. And also a lot of the band's branding with like colors are red. So it just kind of worked out. So we got the red one, which is nice to me. One of the bands I was working with, I had them on V7s and I used the red and the black for like primary and backup mics. So red was always the live mic and then black filter was the backup mic so if we had to switch something i knew exactly which one they were on without having to be yelled at it's a good idea i like that yeah well it was nice that we were in a position to have primary and backup wireless mics for each wireless channel that we had so it having those extra filters was like a really nice benefit so we could toggle them back and forth so we're talking about vocal chains or are we talking about your your lead singer's vocals what other processing are you doing on the vocals? Are you doing it in the box? Are you doing it through waves? Can you Do you mind taking us through sort of your vocal process? We have like three different levels of processing before it's over. So we do a lot in the DAW. So we do a lot of gain automation up and down for like falsetto part. You know, he's a very, very quiet singer for a lot of parts for like a lot of the pop influence electronic stuff where it's just him and tracks a lot of times. And um, it's just hard for me to like, get it to hit the compressors that I, the way I like it to, um, on some of those quiet parts, we have gain automation and we have a compressor in the DAW that are both of which are automated. So quiet parts, the gain will go up and then other parts, if it's too hot, I will, um, knock the threshold of the compressor down to make it hit that compressor. Just, you know, try to take off like four to six in the box on like just a general standpoint and then from there we will go and that get that, that that's how it comes to me and then um i do i use the 2a version like the la whatever la 2a guy in the d live and then that takes off another i don't know five to eight on a pretty extreme scenario like about as loud as he gets but because we're doing automation in the DAW, his signal doesn't vary too too much by the time it gets to me which is nice and then that will go to, yeah, just, then I go to EQ it. I cut off everything below about 140 live, maybe 150, just so I don't have any of those big weird peaks that'll just take off on you. Cut out some around 200, some 500. I go to a pretty big boost around uh, 8K though on that mic. And then we're at insert B there. And then we get to waves. And then at waves, I use the PSE. Primary source expander is like my secret weapon now to keep vocals, uh, symbols out of vocals. Nate Northway showed me that thing on the Data Remember Tour that we did um, over the summer. And I was like, dude, how are you getting no symbols in your mic? Like ever, I cannot, I don't get it. Like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, okay, secret weapon. PSC, I use it twice because he was on the SXL. So he had it like on a front insert, like mic, 
inserted from all of his outboard stuff that he does straight to a PSC. And then he would do all of his vocal channel processing and then another PSC before the main big compress compression and everything else and all the rest of that. So his is like crazy controlled. Like that he Jeremy walks right up to drums and there's nothing. Doesn't come through it. He'll just like point the mic like directly at the cymbals and it does not get through there. And I'm just like, that's nuts. I don't have that luxury because I don't have that many points of insert to be able to just go gate and gate and gate and gate. But it's also, yeah. But anyway, that thing's sick. And then I run it into um, an F6 uh, RTA where I do a lot of multiband stuff from a lot of the frequencies that are built up um, along the way of compression because all those different levels of compression just build up a lot of different frequencies that just kind of start to get ugly. So I do multiband there, taking out some 300. um, His voice kind of builds up around like the 1.2K, 1.6K area. So pretty big uh, bell multi-band situation right there and then another one i think around i think i'm using it as like a ds situation at the top too so i'm kind of taking everything around six and a half k i think i have like a like a shelf where it's DSing that and then that runs into uh cla 76 where i just kind of smash it some more normal you know <laughs> i think i'm using the the bluey version in waves where i'm thinking off like another like three to six i think and then that runs into sibilance live which is just full de-esser, just more stuff getting built up from all these compressors. So I just got to take it out as we go. And then uh, that runs into L1 limiter. And that is where I'm just taking off all the big peaks. And that's just like the final boss of bringing up all of those uh, quiet falsetto scenarios. And uh, he's taking off the peaks of all the big scream stuff because he's just like a crazy dynamic vocalist. So he does like really, 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 really quiet falsetto stuff. And then he's just screaming full songs and then just got big built-in choruses and then just really quiet verses between it. So I just got to control it. So I use that L1 at the end to take off. I think like, I think I'm taking off like six to eight on like the large peaks. So it's just a brick wall by the time it's coming out, which is nice. And I forgot um on the insert a before i do uh the compressor and eq and everything on the console i'm using the dyne 8 so i'm doing more multiband on the way in over there i'm doing just tons of maintenance on like that uh like 150 to 500 area and then also um i think i'm doing a pretty big shelf boost around 8k but also like pulling it down so it's like always boosted but if he hits it too hard it'll just ds it on the way in too so i have just so many different layers of compression and then adding stuff and then pulling it back and then compressing it and then just multi-band just just so much stuff now to make it what it is but you know i feel like it works yeah the old saying goes if it sounds good it is good you know like who cares what it looks like on the on the screen as long as it sounds good it's true it's true. <laughs> I just started using Dynate pretty regularly. Are you using it on every channel or are you just sort of selectively using it? I feel like I'm using it everywhere I can get away with using it. Like if it doesn't have a situation where it's like causing something to get wonky or phasey, then I, I feel like I'm definitely using it. So use it on drums. Use definitely use it on guitars. I use it like a C4 or a C6 like I would on guitars. Uh, as far as drums go, it's mostly just for, um, I feel like it's just to pull out and kind of control some of the low mids and toms and stuff on the way in. So I don't have to cut so much of that out of there because if he's, you know, I don't need to pull out 15 dB of 300 Hertz if he's just kind of 
lightly doing a buildup thing, but if he's crushing it and there's a ton of it, then I need more to be gone of it. So it also helps me um, control the high end of the drums on the way in because I, you know, multi-band the high end. So I'll just go in and do like a big shelf at like 6K, boost like 5 or 6 dB on the Dynate before it gets to my actual EQ channel. And then also have like a really fast attack, a really fast release control of that one. So if he's hitting it too much, I can duck it down. And then it makes it to where I don't have to have such extreme peaks uh, because I do a lot of high-end boosting on my my shells. Like I have like a 15 dB bell boost at like 8K on like every single drum, which is sounds insane, but also ends up making it sound very sick to me after it's all said and done. But yeah, a lot of a lot of Dynate stuff going on. I, I'm using it pretty much everywhere in a different situation, but just well, pretty much on every channel and a lot of buses too. Like I think I'm close to 64 inserts of it because that's all we got on the on the DM at least. <laughs> when I first looked at the specs for the DLive, I started using it back in 2017, I believe. I saw 64 channels of Dynate and I was like, holy cats, I'll never use 64 inserts. And now I'm like, I wish they'd make 96 inserts. Yeah, I think that I have it on A and B on stuff where it's like, if I don't have waves inserted on B somewhere, I feel like I have the Dynate on A and B doing two different things with it. Because like on my bass channel, for instance, or my bass bus, I think it's either the bass like low that I'm doing because I multiply, I double patch that guy. So I have like a, a low one and a high one. I think I'm using it as like a side chain ducking there so like the kick will duck my sub base it's either happening on the sub channel or on the bus but it's all kinds of different stuff you can do with it and i have it to where it's also um like my tracks are getting ducked by my lead vocal um in like that 1k to 4k area whenever because i want really loud tracks all the time but if he's singing and tracks are happening it can just be too much so i just use the vocal to or sidechain the tracks to the vocals so that when he's singing, it's appropriately ducking out that specific frequency range using the Dynate in that area, which is, it's nice. So then when he's done, the tracks are still in your face and crazy loud. But if he's singing something super delicate, it pulls out the range that you need to hear him in while, while still leaving like subs and like the super sparkly high end stuff going on in there, which is, which is kind of nice. But yeah. Lots of different, really positive um, instances of the Dynate being super, super versatile, which is cool. I do the same thing with a Treyu, but I do it on guitars versus tracks because they they only have like three channels of tracks and it's like booms and effects and then some background vocals. But our guitars, for whatever reason, seem to mesh with Brandon, our lead singer's vocals. So I run all my guitars into a guitar bus and then I sidechain that guitar bus off of Brandon's vocals. And that seems to work really well with the Dynate, but I'm guessing it's, we're doing the same thing just on different channel groups, so great minds yeah definitely works like that's still the same frequency range i i have the a similar issue where like like what do i use more of and like what's more prominent in our songs it's like guitars are there but like they're not like the in the front of everything so i don't really have to worry about them fighting with the vocals so much but if we have like a super crazy vocal or i guess guitar heavy song i'd have to do it with that instead so it's not like i can just like flip the instance of like what's ducking what based off of what song unless i started using like different different songs and different scenes and just have my show file and have everything on a different thing uh snapshot but i don't do that right now right now it's just one static mix that's my set i just run through and just change it as we go and just whatever happens happens but i, I think i would like to get into having 
different scene for a different song. So I can kind of have like, here's the rock drum mix. Here's the metal drum mix. Here's like the, uh, whatever the song's got the vocals or the guitars duck to the vocal instead of the track duck. Cause it's like the metal song instead of the whatever electronic song. So maybe that's something I'll get into when I have the time. I just, I don't have, I never have the gear with me. It's all in Virginia and I live in Texas. So I have to go for months between touching the console or anything. So it's just like, it drives me crazy, but you know, maybe I'll get something out here one day to work on so I can actively think about this stuff off tour. <laughs> yeah, that would be rough. Like I'm, I'm super lucky. I bought my D live. I've bought a couple of D lives now, but I've bought and sold them, but it's nice having it in front of me because as we're talking, I'm looking at it and seeing exactly what you're talking about. So going from memory, like you are putting in a little bit of a tough spot for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I finally just got, a, or we finally just got another one, which is nice. And also all the gear is going to be based out of Texas soon. So I'll have everything with me so I can actively like work on my show between stuff like everyone else and just get to use my gear. <laughs> Cause it's just, you know, I haven't used it since December 14th. We fly out tomorrow for tour and then we have a rehearsal and then we go down to Shiprock and then go to this European tour. And it's just like, uh, hope everything's fine. Hope, hope all the changes work. <laughs> Luckily, it's a lot like riding a bike. I feel like once you've worked on the D Live and you've got your file, even if you've been away from it for a year, you can jump back into it pretty quickly because the UI is just so friendly. Definitely true. This will be our third tour using it. Like we were on a Pro One forever or X32 for a long time when we finally got a console. I mean, I had to house it for years just like everybody else, but then we were X32 for some years and then we got a Pro One, which we used up till COVID stuff happened. And then right out of COVID, we did one more tour with the Pro One and that felt crazy going from like a year and a half not using a console and then getting back into something like a Pro One, which is not particularly user friendly. <laughs> Totally agree. I I love the sound of the Pro Series, but that interface, especially the routing and the layout of things, doesn't jive with my thought or mindset, I guess. And so I just, I love them, but I, I don't feel comfortable on them. So I, I empathize. Yeah, no, you're, you're not, you're not wrong. Like if I ever wanted to change an insert anywhere, with any kind of by any effect at all, I was just like, dude, this is going to take an hour. I got like got to start over like, uh, like from to to from back to everything and then the the page of it's all messed up. It's like I I hate using this thing. Like it sounds insane once it's there, but I'm like I guess this is my show until I just had to get a new console because I just can't do stuff fast enough on this. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Where then you have stuff like an X32 where you can just like set anything in like ten seconds and it's fine and it works perfectly because there's not like a weird insert process. Same for D like. You don't even have to think about it on that thing. It just works. It's it's so sick. Like I just I can do so much more on this thing than I could ever do on anything else. So I don't intend to be leaving this uh, console for a long time. I've mentioned this before, and I don't know how accurate it is. So if somebody does know more, please let me know. But I was in a D Live masterclass a couple of years ago, and it, and it was taught by Mike Bangs. And at that point, they said something to the effect of like. The DLive was using less than 30% of its capabilities. Uh, so they're in they're still in firmware version like 1.96 as of the time of this recording. And I can't wait to see what comes out in version 2.0, 3.0, however long they carry on the the product line. It, it should be pretty amazing because I think they're still sort of just scratching the surface of what it can do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's crazy that it didn't have an RTA till just like right now. 
like SQ series all had RTAs and they were just like the whatever diet D live, like whatever mid version of everything. And then it's like, I can't believe this top line thing that you guys make doesn't have an RTA in it. That's crazy. That was a subject of much, much, much controversy on all of the forums, especially the Allen and Heath user forum. People were begging for it. One side of the audience was begging for this RTA. And the other side was saying, well, if you can't mix with your ears, then you shouldn't be mixing. You don't need to look at the RTA. I'm paraphrasing what certain people were saying. But thankfully, uh, at least for me, Alan and Heath did come out with the RTA. And it's I really like how they implemented it. They did a really good job. And I do know they wanted to get it perfect, using air quotes there. But I, th- I think they nailed it. Yeah, I think it's sick. I don't, I don't have, I've never, I mean, it just does what it's supposed to do. I don't do it for, I don't use it for any of the, like, the other weird stuff that a lot of people do i just need to be able to see it sometimes you know like i didn't have it for the first time you know like when i was first on the d live i didn't have it and it was fine you know like everybody can get by but obviously it's nice to have especially like when you're tuning your room up and stuff like that you're like where's that build up specifically okay cool i can now i can grab it because i run smart the console through waves into everything in the back end of the console so i can like see the pre pre and post on the rta and i can see it in the console so i read it in there which is nice so it's like i can see the rta on waves and i can see the rta post tuning post whatever on the console so it's like i can always see those two and read it so it's like okay cool there's my a big peak at two and a half k over or i guess um big peak at two and a half k whatever to the mic on the room but after reading everything and it's back into the console i can see that it's not there so i need no i need to like if i still hear it then i can see what's actually happening to it i can pull it out you know, that would take a lot longer if you didn't have an RTA. <laughs> and it's like, you know, obviously your earphones and ears work, but might go to 2K instead of two and a half or three instead of whatever and just end up cutting some other stuff up you shouldn't. But whatever, who cares? I heard that they were making, um, that they were putting a distressor into the next uh, level of whatever, whatever the next upgrade is or update or whatever you want to call it so that'd be cool because mighty compressor is pretty sick and i feel like that's like a uh, mix of a bunch of stuff to kind of be like a distressor but an actual like distressor type plugin i feel like would be super super sick i heard the same thing and i believe it came from a ask me anything type of video that alan and heath had done where they had one of their their lead engineer designer on screen and behind him you could see a distressor in his little equipment rack and I think that people saw that and were like, oh, they're coming out with the distressor. But I'm with you. My fingers are crossed because I'd love to have a distressor version to play with. That'd be sick. And also, I heard that they were working on an API 2500 type compressor. Oh, people couldn't see my reaction, but that would be amazing. That'd be great. They nailed that SSL compressor model. I think they call it the bus compressor. Yeah, I use that on my master now. I use that a lot. I think it's sick. I use that in lots of different scenarios. I use the waves one on a lot of my drum groups and like waves inserts or whatever across the board. And then I also use like the, uh, the console one that I use in parallel. My entire mix goes into it on the master and I like hit it really, really hard and then mix it in parallel against itself. So it's like my whole mix is against itself being hit really, really hard with the, the onboard SSL, which is sick. So I'm getting a lot of extra power out of that thing. So I use a lot big, Big fan. Uh, well, we'll stop this DLive commercial here and we'll go yeah. talk about some other things. I, I'm really curious about your room tuning process. You sort of gave us a little bit of an overview of how you 
manage the RTA and the spectrum analyzation side of it, but what's your process? You come into a new venue, your console's tipped, everything's patched, you're standing at front of house and you're going to start tuning a room. Take me through that process, especially like a bigger room. Honestly, it is like not, I, I don't know. I feel like so whack about my process. I straight up don't do anything different ever. Like I get it. I have my one PA room list, like my little four song list of songs that I will just play. And that's my go-to. I play the four, same four in, in order every single time sit at the front of house position. A lot of times I don't have time to like run around and actually walk the room, go to the balcony, go make sure the front fills are per- perfectly placed and whatever. Cause I, I TM as well. So it's like, usually it's like, all right, sound checks at one at one fifty, I finally get, or sorry, 1250. I finally get to run out to front of house and tip the console and plug everything in, get both laptops up and get waves ready to go. So it's usually just like a throw and go. Like I won't even lie. I don't have like a crazy process. So I get it up. Everything's ready. Uh, start at zero. Uh, my whole um, mix is through uh, matrices. So I have just uh, everything. Like let my left, right feeds a bunch of matrices. So I have like a left, right set, a sub, and then a fill and then a delay if I ever need it. So yeah, nothing too crazy. Just, uh, Usually start with the uh, Rascal Flatts song. I like the sound of that. That's number one. And that one has just like a ton of like that 200 to 300 honky stuff going on and a bunch of really, really like sharp, painful two and a half to three K vocal stuff going on. So I kind of picked songs that I know, but I know don't sound very good to me, like based off of modern standards. And if I can get the not set good sounding songs sounding good in a room, then good sounding stuff will sound really good because all the painful stuff's already gone. So I start with that and that's for uh, pretty much like the vocal tendencies that him and Noah have that they're shared at least. So that's some like 2K to 4K stuff where I'm just really getting the sharp stuff out. And then I use a Chevelle song called Safer Waters after that, which is just like crazy brittle cymbals, blow your head off. Like 5K to 8K is just going nuts. And then, um, like the guitar low end is pretty, pretty, uh, substantial in that song. So I'm able to get like the 120 to 160 stuff that has a tendency to build up and take off on you under control with that one. And then, um, I do lying from you from Lincoln park. Cause it's got a lot of tracks going on in it that are in that like one K to three K kind of like ticky area. That's like very electronic, like type stuff. And we got a lot of that stuff going on. So helps me get control of those and then by the end of that i'm usually in a good spot a uh, good spot where i can do like a quick virtual through a song and i'm usually fine but yeah nothing too crazy about it i just like to like to mix it like a 102 a 103 out front consistently 103 is like the crazy loud ones but like when when the room's set up nice and everything's in phase and it's nice i like I find myself sitting around 100 a lot of times like i don't like to mix super loud just because i have to we have long sets now and we're at the end of the show and I'm not trying to like kill these people up front. You know, they've been there for a long show and if it's hurting me, it's really hurting them. So if it's not comfortable to listen to for me, I, I don't like to, to push it too far. So I like to take out all the painful stuff. And then that's usually where it gets me about after that. So nothing, nothing too crazy. Like a lot of people like to go walk and they'll spend a lot of time trying to like reposition front fills and things like that. But I usually just don't have the time for it. So I haven't spent um, a lot of time, on that 
like I'd like to be able to do more of that as we go, but usually it's just getting rid of the sharp stuff where I'm at and uh, just kind of taking it and running with it, you know, it goes. So far, so good, though, I think. I had to look at my, I was distracted for a second. I pulled up my system tuning playlist and we have sort of similar theories and thoughts on things. But the first song I always play is Door to Door Door Cannibals by Chevelle. It has just a really great baritone guitar. And I always sort of struggle with the the low mids slash lows, especially in larger like arenas. And that one will build up on you pretty quickly. So that's when you said Chevelle, I was making sure we weren't using the same song. Yeah, it, it, it's good. You get it. You know what you for. Like every a lot of people. I mean, I just I'm not gonna use a Deftones song. I'm not gonna do it. Everyone else does it. I don't care about it. I don't. I don't even think that everyone does it for the same reason. People just were like, "Oh, that's like the sound guy. Like that's the song everyone tunes with." I'm like, "You? Why? Like who cares? Like there's oh, so many better sounding things now. Obviously, it's a cool song, but like, damn, that's not like your full spectrum." modern mix by by today's standards that are just going to cover everything like and if i have a situation where it's just like going crazy on me and it's just i still can't get control of it my final boss is a graveyard by halsey which is just like crazy sub stuff super super sparkly high and shiny vocals so if um if i was going to have if if i was having issues in a room That'd be the final boss because that's I feel like just like the meat and potatoes of what we do. A lot of sub and then um just a lot of that sparkly high end vocal stuff, which I really, really, really need to uh nail for Noah. So if it came down to it and I've had to pick us like or if I didn't have any time at all and I couldn't run through my songs in, in order, I would just hit that one and that pretty much get me started so that I could take it and run with it. I guess like, you know, in a festival scenario where you only get like 30 seconds real quick before they yell at you during changeover the, Hey, you're not supposed to play, be playing house music. You're not supposed to do that. Like whatever. I just sneak in 30 seconds of that song so I can just at least get a feel for the, for the spot. <laughs> but yeah, that's my, my final one. If something happens, my other couple of go-tos are Herzl Hyde. I think I'm saying that correctly by Rammstein. Mm-hmm. It's a great, another great low end, but all the sizzly stuff. Then I love uh, fragments of time by Daft Punk. Their, their stuff is produced so well. That it's just, if that sounds, by that point, if it sounds good or sounds great, I know I'm going to have a really good show. Yeah, that's good. You're good. <laughs> yeah. And then my uh, my tricky bass song is a song called Temptation by Diana Crawl. I think I'm saying her last name correctly. But it's an upright acoustic bass. And in big rooms, that finger plucking bass in like a big resonant upright bass just really goes nuts and so if i can tame that and get it sounding tight i'm in good shape yeah that makes sense all right we're coming up on an hour the time is sort of flowing by and i really enjoyed getting all of the rig rundown information in your console information i also was going to ask you about your transition over to the d live but you covered that going from house to x32 to pro to d live were there any other consoles that you sort of were in control of for a while uh, the, the main, no, that, that's all the ones we've ever taken with us. Like for Ghost Inside, I'm still on an M32 like now, but I think they just ditched it and we're going to go SQ. So that's what I use at monitors for us currently. So no problem. Just different version of it, of this essentially, just not quite as extreme, which is, you know, they don't need all the extra stuff there. There's not nearly as much going on with them as far as like all the different dynamic necessities of control. So that's what we just got to. So 
X32 and then Pro One, and then I guess SQ is what I'm still using for monitors for these guys, and then um, the D Live. That's that's where I'm at now, which is where I intend to stay for a while at least. So that raises a question: You're using the SQ with bad omens for monitors? Yes. Oh, crazy! Are you sharing those off of the same DM48, or are you guys doing a copper split, or like a gig split, or how are you doing the two different? Uh, We're doing gain share. Um, off of the um, C1500. So I've got the CTI1500 front um, and we got the SQ5 at monitors. So I have somebody at monitors kind of just like riding faders. If there ever needs to be a change, I think he kind of rides it for Noah uh, during the set. So if like there's like the quiet, quiet parts that are still just not quite crushed enough just because it'll just take away the dynamic contrast of everything. He'll just kind of just up and down on those specific parts. And yeah, it was just a gain share off a gig ace card. So uh, it's all digital, no no copper splits. And it also makes my life easy because I never, ever, ever have to give the house anything. And they can also never tell me that I have to use their stuff. They're like, oh, we have uh, we don't have room for your stuff. You can just use our split. And I'm like, I don't have a split. I'm not doing that. I can't do that. I built a system so that I can never not, not use it. So like I for sure always have my stuff. <laughs> and it's it's nice because they can never take my multi-tracks because they can't get into my system. They can have a left, right if it has to be broadcasted. And if they if it doesn't work, then we don't do it. So it's pretty nice. So I never have to give away or disclose anything as far as gear stuff. So like venues that ask for input list, I'm like, you don't need that. They're like, what's your input list? I'm like, don't matter. I'll be there with my stuff. It's small. See when we get there. <laughs> Isn't it funny how you tell a venue that you're completely self-contained because it's always ITM for a couple of groups also, and it's always the same thing. Send us your input list. No. And my response is, we're self-contained. We don't need anything from the house. We don't, we're good. And then I'll get a, okay, what's your input list? <laughs> and it's like... Why? You think you're going to take my multi-tracks and go record it and do your own thing after the fact? No chance, dude. Not happening. I have a theory. I think it's just like autopilot. They're so used to having to get input lists from bands that they see your response that we're self-contained. We don't need anything. And then they skip over that and look at their checkbox and input list isn't checked, you know, so they ask again. I don't have their input list, but you don't need it. I promise. <laughs> yeah, we, I get asked repeatedly about input lists and mics and I'm like, we carry all of our own mics. We have our, we're all self-contained. Don't need to worry about it. I need power and this much space and I will do everything else. I promise. Exactly. All right. So I've got to ask a couple of sort of off-the-cuff questions here. However, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. I know we talked a little bit before we hit record. I'm assuming you guys don't carry your own PA these days? We don't. We don't, and um, I think that day will be here sooner than later, or we do, but uh, we don't yet. What will you shop when you get to carry your own PA? What What's your ideal PA? I'm sure, I'm very confident no one has ever said this, but whatever the PA that is in the Anaheim House of Blues, I want that thing. If that's it's a big JBL, and no everyone does not like JBL, but I have love those new ones. Yeah, I believe they're VTX at House of Blues Anaheim, which is fairly new, but that it, that room is tuned so well. I love that room. Whatever that thing is, I want that, and I know that that's not like your K two, K three, whatever Meyer, whatever. Whoever, I don't care. I want that thing. That thing is just already cut up the way that our music needs to be cut up. I don't have to do much to it. It leaves me so much more room to actually 
I don't know, like just musically treat the PA instead of try to like carve it up and like make it workable. It's already workable. So then I have all of my, my stuff's not cut up by the time I'm starting there. Whereas other places I have to just hack it to pieces before I can even start. And then I have not no, I got nowhere to go because it's already cut up. That thing's already near flat by the time I'm uh, getting started on it. So then I have so much room to work with if I want to do anything, which is just huge to me. So I, I really love that thing. Whatever that thing is, I want one. I'll, I'll, I'll just get some, some of that brought with us if it ever comes down to it, or I guess whenever it comes down to it. And uh, probably costs less than, a, than an L acoustics rig by a ton too. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure that that I'm sort of anti JBL, famously or infamously. Um, but I'm I'm anti JBL Vertec and anti JBL VRX series. But I'll take VTX all day long, and I'll take JBL's new A series all day long. But the A series costs as much as L acoustics. So I see when you look at those, then I'm like, well, I'd probably take L acoustics over the the A series. But not to say I ever had a bad time with L acoustic stuff, but I feel like it just like. I don't know. I feel like it, it doesn't have a sound, which is, I guess, good to some people, but I like it to like, I like stuff that complements the type of music that's going through it. And those definitely do that, uh, that JBL system specifically, at least. And uh, I don't know. That's one stuff that I'm not going to have to hack up too much on the way in because I feel like we're all playing like mid scooped, like metal rock music and it already just works nicely. And then you can just go put more stuff in your channel and it'll come out instead of trying to like, you know, if you have a PA you have to add to, you're probably in trouble. If I have to like add low mids or whatever places, if I'm having to like, I'm not having enough snare low mid and like 200, 210, 190 area, and I have to like go put a boost in your PA, I feel insane. Had to do it before. Like last tour, there's a few situations where there's like my snare, I just don't have any 200, what's going on. And I had to go actually add it to the PA and it just never works the right way, but it'll, it'll help a little bit, but it's just, you know, it's just ugh, gross. But anyway, I'd never had to do that with that, with that specific JBL rig. And I feel like that's probably the, the best sounding room I've been in in the last year. Cause I went there a few times and I was like, this is, I want whatever this is, if it, whatever it comes down to it. So that's, that's my final answer. I think. I love it. I support it 100% because I really, really do like that House of Blues Anaheim room. It, it is really awesome. What a, I'm, I'm diverting from my final couple of questions here, but your snare sounds are always pretty epic, especially your snare bombs. And I sort of teased that we would talk about that. And I'm just remembering now that we didn't talk about it. So two questions. What's the fundamental that you tune your primary snare to? And then can you take us through your snare bomb chain if you're willing? Yeah, sure. Um, so I don't really have a fundamental that I tune it to. I spent a lot of time over the years tuning drums, and I can typically tell when a drum wants to start opening up from like a tension situation. And then also when you're just tapping on the edges, when it starts coming up, it'll get to that specific spot where some of that, I don't know, I feel like there's like underlying tones under the outside of it when you're bringing it up like a dead head like a brand new head all the way up and i typically go uh i i usually end up around the 200 to 215 area on a snare 215 hertz i find that the higher i tune the drum i don't always have to go boost that specific fundamental 
you know, towards the end of a life, end of the, of the life of a drum head, um, around two thirty, two thirty five. Sometimes I think it's just too high. So I'll still find myself with that big, huge bell boost around 200, 190 sometimes, whatever. So even if the head, the drum itself is tuned higher, I will still have that same low fundamental built in. So you end up getting like a higher sounding drum, but still all, all the extra boof out of like that low guy. But typically I'm around like the 215, 218, 210, that range, because we use big drums. So we have a 14 by eight as our main snare. And that's just like been the go-to size for years and years and years. So we can tune it high, but it still feels low and thick and big. So that is generally where that goes. And while we're at it, just on fundamental frequencies, so 200 about on snare, I'm usually about 125, 126, 124, that area on my rack tom fundamental, but that usually comes out anywhere from 85 to 88 on that uh, first floor tom. And that second floor tom usually anywhere from like 63 to 65. So those three together in that order really feel good together. So that's typically where I end up boosting. And the, the, the shells are generally in that range anyway. So you can just take some of that load that's already there and just kind of enhance it. And that's just usually where I end up. And then um, talking about my snare bomb channel, it's not really anything crazy. It's just its own reverb. It just gets its own reverb. That return is always up, always. And I just um, have a DCA of the mute and unmute of the send. So that's really it. it. That's nothing. It's just my full snare channel, snare top and bottom, both sent at zero to this reverb. And um, as long as your snare sounds good at that level, like both things at zero or whatever, you know, get a mix in where you want it. Because sometimes you don't want as much sizzle in it, whatever. I, I just get mine to where at the end of my chain, zero is where everything is. So all my faders at zero all the time. So that's just kind of how I operate. And then um, they're both sent there at that level. I usually have a big plate reverb with maybe two to four millisecond pre-delay on it. So I don't want a bunch of smack coming through and having a late return. I want it to be the second that drum gets hit, you get pretty much the very beginning of a transient and then just reverb explosion. So pretty pretty quick attack on that one maybe two to four milliseconds and then on the x32 i was able to go like i don't know four and a half second decay and that because it just was way longer than that in real life like four and a half second decay on that thing was like 10 seconds for real so on the d live i think i'm sitting at like eight seconds for that decay and then you just obviously mix it in whatever but um it's all based off of the, the send level. So your return being up and then the EQ on the actual reverb, I'm going and I'm boosting a little bit of 200 and then a big, huge bell boost around 8K. So I'm probably like plus, to eight, plus eight on a big bell at 8K and plus like, I don't know, three and a half, maybe four at 200 area. And then based on your room, you're going to have to change that in and out. So like if you have 3dB boosted in, some eight second decay of a snare bomb and your room has a ton of 200 in it you're gonna mess the place up so you gotta be real careful with that one specifically but um yeah a lot of people will just they do bombs a lot of people do stuff like that but a lot most most that i see don't put any eq on the channel on the like on the the send or the return whatever you know like on uh, the x32 you can eq sends and returns but on the live it's just uh it's just the send right or is it just a return i don't know which one it is i forgot 
I'll have to look. I'm not going to look right now because I'll get distracted. But you're right. It, it, I believe it's on the return only that you can EQ it. Yeah, so I had to change the process a little bit with that by by EQing the return only instead of the send. But um, yeah, it's it's really not a whole lot to it. It's just having a really good like fundamental snare sound to start off with. And then um, making sure that your pre-delay is not too crazy because a lot of people will still treat it like it's like a drum reverb and it's not a drum reverb channel. It's an effect channel. So you can't treat it like it's like, oh, I want to have a 40 millisecond pre-delay because I want to let the drum in before the reverb starts happening. Like, no, you want to have instant bomb situation. So right when you're hitting that drum and that effect is open, it should be happening. And then you just, you know, dial in your decay to taste. EQ that specific area, something like that, depending on how your drum's tuned up or down based off where your fundamental is. And then, um, yeah, I just leave that return up. And then I have that send on its own DCA. And it's also on its own soft soft key. So if I'm on like a different page on the console and I need to hit the part, I can just go mute or unmute it for the specific spot. And there's my bombs. I just uh, up or down that volume level on the DCA for the, the send up and down. And that's it. Because I see a lot of people um, ride the returns, and it just makes me feel insane. Like, I think it sounds so bad. Because you're getting decay from every other snare hit, and they might have the return down all the way. But if you start turning it up for your hits, you're still getting the leftover stuff from the previous ones. And if you're just riding there at the send... And you get all your decay. It's only the hits you want right when you want it. It's just so much cleaner and you actually get the effect out of it rather than just being like, it's like some additional drum reverb. You just get its its own specific effect, which feels tracked, but it's cool to know that's like, you're the one doing it. It's like its own special thing that's only live generally because that's usually not records and stuff like that. So that's uh, that's how I do them and that's how I write them. It is so satisfying to know that you're the one behind the wheel air quotes, if you will, making that that magic happen. And uh, I, I don't know, I derive a great deal of pleasure from that. Nobody else probably notices it or knows it, but it is it is super fun. It's only sound people and like people that really spend a lot of time like going to shows or like just audio people that know that stuff, but I don't care. <laughs> I like it. Keep doing it. <laughs> I love it. Okay, now we can get to my closing question. So I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you. When you're when you're on the road as much as you are, I imagine you use some streaming services, Netflix, all that fun stuff. What what are your go to shows right now, or what shows do you recommend people check out? Last tour, I watched um, that new cyberpunk anime that was really really sick. We watched it on Thanksgiving because we had a day off, so that was nice. I like that one. What else? Um, guys, have, the guys watch a lot of It's Always Sunny, and I'm usually just around just so i've just become familiar with the show and i like that one what have i been watching on tour i usually don't get to spend a whole lot of time on tour watching stuff just because i have to do like a bajillion jobs but um recently i started yellowstone and i really like yellowstone that show's sick it's on peacock i believe the first few seasons at least so that one's sick and then also um new anime called vinland saga it's like a anime, but about like Viking-esque type stuff, which is really sick. And then what's another show I watch this year? Haven't been spending a whole lot of time watching stuff. But yeah, that, that new cyberpunk anime is sick. Uh, Vinland Saga is sick. It's Always Sunny is sick. I think that's about all I've had recently. I like it. All right. And then looking back, we're, we're fairly early in 2023. As we record this, it's a Tuesday, January 17th at around noon central time. 
But what was the highlight of your 2022? What What's your happiest, proudest moment? It could be touring related. It could be life related or some combination thereof. We did uh, that concrete jungle tour and it fully sold out in advance and we spent over a year putting it together. So that was probably the coolest thing that we've done that I feel really connected to and uh, just proud of. Like that was so sick to do that. And then we have another like part two of that, but in Europe also sold out in advance. Big, huge, cool win. Like it feels sick, you know, plus like just seeing all the different, all the new progress the band's having as far as streaming and just viral this and that and whatever, all everything. So all so sick. So it's just, we, you know, we've been doing it for a long time and it's just nice to finally see it like come together in like a, uh, just a larger scenario than any of us really ever thought was going to be a thing, um, surrounding the touring at least. Cause that's like the primary thing that I'm involved with, but there's just that, that happening was just like so rewarding to see it happen. So tour selling out and then being huge, big win, and then doing it in Europe like a month later, also sick. And then um, we'll have we have some more stuff we're putting together for the end of like uh, towards the middle of this year and the end of this year that we're also hoping has a similar outcome that is going to be much bigger and much cooler than than that too. So without giving too much away, we have a lot of stuff coming that I hope is just as crazy and uh i think will be well you did a great job because you sort of answered the follow-up question which was going to be what have you got coming up in 2023 i won't pry too much on the the stuff that's coming up later in the year but how long is your tour that's coming up in europe and and do you know how many countries you're going through we're going to the eu and the uk and we're going to germany uh czech republic going to switzerland we're going to netherlands going to the uk france austria Hungary. So there's eight right there. I don't know if I'm missing any. We're not hitting the Denmark and Norway and all that stuff. I think there's eight. I might be missing one. So I'm just going to call it nine. Oh yeah. Italy. Nine. There, there it is. That one. And then we're doing ship rocked, um, which we fly out for tomorrow to do rehearsals for. So we're doing ship rocked and then sh- straight from ship rocked to Germany for rehearsals and then starting in Germany. And that will be, um, I guess over there, we'll be there the 30th of January till March 9th. So pretty long. I think, uh, I think this full excursion is 60 days uh, start to finish, starting tomorrow. Dang. Well, we're going to be in Europe at exactly the same time. I leave with a Treyu on January 26th, and I get back March 13th. So we'll be in a lot of the same places. It'll be, I'll keep an eye out for you. Yeah. Hope you can get, uh, get out to one this time. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We were the same city in Nashville on this last tour, but you were doing stuff right when I was doing stuff. So it happens. I know it was such a bummer because I think we were at the Metropolitan in Nashville and I can't remember where you guys were at, but I was so bummed that I couldn't get out of the venue and get over to see you. Yeah, we were at the Brooklyn Bowl, just like right down the street. And some of the other guys from your tour got to come out, but they were like the band guys. They actually just got to, you know, sit around all day and just wait to play. (laughs) Yeah. All right. And then my final question for you, um, I'm going to share a link to your Instagram and I hope people follow it if that's cool with you, but you post a lot of raccoons. Where did that come from? I just like them, man. I think um, I had a phase like over over COVID stuff when I just started getting like otters posted or just, they would just show up on like pages and I was like, man, these guys are goofy guys. I like them. They're nice. So um, we went and there's like a little rescue about an hour and a half away from us right now in Texas. 
and they had a couple of otters that you could swim with. So that was just like, I like them. There's a place to go see them and got to go swim with them. But like little cute critters like that, little small, nice, I don't know, just like funny personality, like little animals like that. I like them a lot. So after the otters and I just, you know, got to do that, I feel like raccoons just started popping up everywhere. And they're just like the new, the new obsession. I like them a lot. And, uh, you can actually get them in Texas. It's legal. You have to get a permit to, to like show it's like a rescued some, some capacity or like, a I don't know, some, some not difficult permit to get. And you can just have them in, in your house and just keep them. And they're just like a mix between a cat and a dog, but like way more mischievous. They're just, I don't know. They just seem like fun goofy guys to have and i just like them so maybe one day i'll be able to have one but right now i've just gone too much so one day we'll get to it if we can get to it it would be sick to have a tour raccoon i know a lot of tours have like tour dog tour cat but a tour raccoon crazy the our bus company would never go for that just i can just imagine what a raccoon would do when they're by themselves for like i don't know four hours in a bus they would just tear everything to pieces just because they're so bored looking for stuff or they'd rewire like the AV system and everything would actually work. Yeah, it work. It, they'd, they'd somehow get the slide out to work. Exactly. All right. <laughs> well, Matt, this was beyond fun. I really enjoyed chatting and nerding out on the DLive stuff, understanding your rig rundown for all the bad omens. Thanks for all the great stories. And like like we said, I hope we run into each other and we actually get a chance to hang out in person to be super sick. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. This is super fun. And uh, I love to learn about audio stuff and I like never get to. So uh, thanks for having me. This is cool. And that's a wrap on this episode of Mix Masters. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mix Masters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Sure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.